Good morning, everybody. I will be reading Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mattat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janae, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Semyon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kossum, the son of El-Madam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the song, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, 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 the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, as you can tell from that passage that was just uh, very expertly read this morning, uh, and know uh, that I am sorry, Dakota, for putting you through that. Oh, she can't even. Oh, she can hear me. There we go. I'm sorry for putting you through that one, uh, that awkward list of names. But this morning, we are going to be talking about the genealogy of Christ, or more particularly about the one which can be found in the book of Luke. Uh, a distinction that's going to be important, uh, as you're going to find out in just a few moments. Uh, now, genealogies, they're an odd kind of thing. Most people are not fan of them when they come across them in reading the Bible, and I, I'm here to say that, that that is really too bad. I mean, on the one side, I, I get it, because, well, because it's just a big old long list of names, uh, but on the other side, well, if you were a people who is just all about tracking who is related to who, like the Mennonites are often leveraged as me, uh, and like the Jews in the Bible are, uh, then, or like my parents-in-laws are as well, they are just gifted when it comes to remembering who is related to who. But if you are those types of people, then genealogies, they are just very important to keep in mind. And that is why we're going to be spending today talking about that big old list of names that is at Luke three twenty-three to 38, if you want to open your Bibles there. 
Now to do this, uh, to talk about this list, we're, we're taking a bit of a different approach than we normally would. Instead of talking about the interesting thing about this passage up front, we're instead going to be talking a little bit about what's important to keep in mind when we look at a genealogy like this in the Bible before jumping into this one in particular. That may sound like just absolute boredom to many of you. I'm wondering where Colby is in particular. I'm sorry. But um, I'm going to say right here up front uh, that my goal today, uh, and this is ambitious, I know, but, but my goal today is that by the end of this service, uh, we are all going to come away from this passage just absolutely fascinated by genealogies. I'm not going to say they're going to be your favorite thing. I'm going to say that is a lofty goal to set, but I think, I think if you will stick with me, we're going to be able to do just that. So, I guess let's jump into it. Genealogies. As you may have noticed, if you have been keeping up to your read the Bible in a year schedule, you've already gone through a couple of them now. They're, they're all over the place in the Bible. Now, this may seem like a puzzling thing for a writer to do for us reading the Bible in the here and now. As to us, such a list is, you know, kind of awkward and boring. Uh, but trust me when I say that is only because we live in one of the very few times in all of recorded history where knowing who your ancestors were back to the nth degree was not a necessity for daily life. Simply put, for the, the first century reader of scripture, the people who would have been reading when Luke was writing, a genealogy would have been an important thing to have in order to take Jesus seriously for what he was claiming and for what his followers were claiming about him. There are two reasons for that. The first is that a genealogy often can act as a kind of a resume, if you will. And the second reason is that a genealogy serves as a kind of shorthand for saying that you are in someone else's club too. Now let me go ahead and unpack what I mean by that. So that first reason for the importance of genealogy, saying that a list like this, one in Luke serves as a kind of resume, to show you what I mean by that, I want to point to the difference between two different genealogies in the Bible. The first is the one that can be found at the beginning of Matthew, right in chapter 1 before the story of the mission of Christ begins. And the second is in Exodus 6, 14 to 25, the genealogy of Moses that can be found right before he gets into his ministry of trying to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Now I ask you, what is the effect on the story in these two books, placing these passages in these two places? The first, right in the beginning of the book, before the story even begins, and the second, after the child is all grown up, but before they begin their mission. See, by my reading, I figure it does something like the following. By putting a genealogy before the action begins, you, you start the story knowing that the, the character is another chapter 
in the story of the mission of God to his people. This is clearly what Matthew is doing in that genealogy. By placing the genealogy where he does, it shows the reader that just as God worked in all of these other great people's lives, in Abraham, Boaz, and David, now he will also be working in the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the next chapter in the story of God and his people. Exodus, however, that's trying to do something completely different. By placing that big old list of names right before the work of Moses begins in earnest, it is not so much emphasizing the point that Moses is the next chapter in the grand story. It does that. But instead, what it is saying loudly is that for everything that is about to happen, by nature of who Moses is descended from, there is absolutely no one more qualified to do what is about to go down than him. Our passage in Luke, it is in this second camp. It comes after the story of Jesus growing up, but right before he gets into it full on. And this is kind of in line for what we've been hearing about how Luke loves to point out that Moses and Jesus, they're, they're pretty similar people. It's not that placing the genealogies before the action starts takes away from that divine narrative, but instead it is that by placing the genealogy where he did, Luke is asking a very particular question that we need to keep in mind. Why should you trust that Jesus is who we say he is? To that, Luke's answer is this. Just take a look at who he is related to. With ancestors like Jesus, it's suddenly not so surprising if some of those miraculous things that are said about him are true because his family, well, they, they have a long history of the miraculous happening to them. We today, we, we may use our genealogies and family trees to point out when we had a famous ancestor or a rich uncle, but back then, well, it was a, a completely different kind of thing. It was more like, Princes pointing to their kingly parents uh, for legitimacy when they try to take over the throne. That is the first thing that I want to point out about genealogies. Back in the day, they were used as a sort of resume to explain why you were qualified to do what you did. Now the second reason. How genealogies were used to show people you were in their club. Back in the day, there was no such thing as instant communications, kind of like texting or the phone. There was mail to some extent, but if you wanted to find something out, well, that often took a little bit of effort. That is something that is obvious when you say it out loud today, but since none of us really have ever lived in a time where that was the reality of life, we may not be aware of all of the problems that that presents. Say, for instance, that you have just a random stranger show up in your town asking for stuff. How do you know whether you should trust him or you should chuck him to the curb? Or how would you know how to act around this person? What if all of a sudden they were royalty trying to jasmine it up? You'd, and that, that right there, that, that is what a genealogy plays a role in. I mentioned once a while back that the Jews, they have a, a long and a storied history of tracking their ancestry. There are people to this day that have their family line drawn all the way back to King David, and that's saying something. And there is a reason for that. 
If you are living amongst a people to whom it is very important to determine if you are one of them or not, there is a lot of value in being able to detail your list and align back to a common ancestor with them. That may seem like an odd thing to do today, but at the heart of it, it's it's kind of a solution to the problem that all of the discussions on illegal immigration and who is a citizen and who is not is trying to deal with today. Back then, those ideas of who was in and who was not, it's kind of a much more strict thing, but also a lot more fluid in different ways than it is today. And so this is something genealogies tried to address. This is not me saying that every Joe Schmozzle on the street knew their genealogy all the way back to Abraham, but more that there is a reason that it is common to find genealogies in all of the sources that we have from rulers and important people back in the time where Luke's writing. We do this today even. Uh, it's essentially what playing the Mennonite game is. That is the second reason I wanted to talk about. Genealogy served as a way to show that people were a part of a particular group, be it nobility, be it family, or nationality. Now those are the two practical reasons that genealogies are so common in the writings of the Bible. But there's one other thing I want to point out as well, something interesting that happens when you take those two reasons and you, you place them into a book in which everything contained is held as holy. You see, when you do that, suddenly something that is as practical as a genealogy, well, it, it suddenly starts making an awful lot of theological points. And I mean, how could it not? As you know from looking at your own family trees, the, the farther you go back, the, the more branches there are. And as such, if you are uh, planning on giving a direct connection between yourself and some long since past, you at some point or another, you need to choose whose names all end up on your list or else it is going to be a behemoth that takes upon books upon books upon books. And you see, with every pruning that you do, you end up making a new point about the subject of your genealogy. And that, that is where this genealogy that we find in Luke really shines. And to show you why, I'm going to spend some time talking about just four of the people on that list. That is all I think I'm going to need to do to win you over to my side about genealogies. The first is David. And he is not one that I want to spend terribly much time on uh, because it's not that he's not important, but more that we talked about him quite a bit, about Jesus being in the line of David over Christmas. So it would be a bit redundant to talk about him terribly much now. But, but to sum him up, David, the second king of Israel, he, he was from the beginning of his kingship chosen by God and his life, it showed it. This is the David who slew a giant of a man running at him, sword drawn with nothing but a rock and a piece of leather. This is the David who ruled over the people of both Judah and Israel, bringing to an end a period of civil war. This is the David who is the beginning of the line of kings that ruled over the Israelites when they were at their glory. 
This is the David who was said to be after the heart of the Lord himself, a phrase that is an honor because while it does not mean that David was a blameless man, something that is made evident with both the story of Michal and also of Bathsheba, it means that David was a man who cared about God's place in his kingdom. That is who David is. First and second Samuel, if you were ever in the need of a fun read. And in knowing his story, we know that in some way, Luke is saying that some of David's majesty is in Jesus as well. Next, and this is going to be one of the most important names on that list. It's Boaz. I've gotten into an, an argument on this one before, but I, I'm firmly of the opinion that one of the keys to understanding all of the Old Testament is reading the story of Ruth. I don't know if any of you have done this before, but if you go ahead and you Google my name, you're going to find a paper that I wrote on Ruth for back in 2012. It was when the, I was at the peak of my smartliness, and I fear for all of our sakes, that it has just been a slow walking down that hill ever since. Uh, all that is to say is that at the end of Ruth, there is another genealogy, and it traces David to Boaz. And I argue that choice on the part of the writer of Ruth, it is one of the biggest things that happens in the entirety of the Old Testament. And the reason I say that in a, in a big summary is this. What is most important about Boaz being in that genealogy? It has nothing to do with Boaz at all. And it has everything to do with his wife, Ruth, for whom the name of the book comes. You see, Ruth, she wasn't an Israelite. She was a, a foreigner, something that the book, it talks about at some length again and again and again. And that is a huge statement for that time. There are many things that are said in the book of Ruth, but perhaps the biggest of them is that the story of Ruth and her mother Naomi is an example of the people of Israel, in this case Boaz and his kin, acting as they are supposed to, as people that follow the law of Moses, welcoming foreigners into their rank through their compassion and their uprightness. I made a big deal in the past about how the, the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel were God's way to reach out to the people of the other nations. And, and that is what the story of Ruth and Boaz is at its core. It is the story of an Israelite man acting in a way according to how the law of Moses was meant to work, bringing a foreign woman into the fold of Israel. This is something that is exceedingly rare to read about from sources at the time. There are only a handful of examples of it in the Old Testament at all, but each one of them is a big deal because it demonstrates how the law of Moses is God's reaching out to his people to bring them to himself. So to see Boaz come up in this genealogy of David, like in Ruth, or in the genealogy of Christ in Luke, what we see is that the love of God as shown in the compassion and the uprightness of Boaz is for everyone. And as such, this is what we can expect Jesus to be like as well. Abraham. 
the one through whom the original covenant with God was made, the founder of Judaism and by extension Christianity, and I suppose Islam as well. If you turn back to the the genealogy of Matthew, you will notice that Abraham is where his list begins. And as I mentioned, then there there is a reason for it. Matthew is trying to make the case that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, the next step in the story of God with his people. So to trace back to the person who started it all, well, that makes an awful lot of sense. Abraham really Really, all the founding fathers, for that matter. Uh, they are an interesting bunch to study if you were ever bored and want to do such a thing. Uh, David, too, for that matter. And I say that because they are all, and I'm going to choose my words carefully here, uh, they are all terrible people. <laughs> I, I'm not even saying that to be controversial. Every time I go through Genesis, I am just astounded at the new and terrible things I find about them. I I grant it, they are more prevalent with particularly Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers, but Abraham is no exception. I'm going to remind you about all that business with Sarah and the Pharaoh, or Sarah and Ishmael, or that whole thing with Isaac and the ram on top of the mountain. I understand that the the point of that story is about the importance of following God, but we should never forget just how horrifying those stories are all the same because it's important to remember to get the full impact of those stories. Abraham is found in Genesis 11 to 25, if you're wanting to read up about him again. There are blemishes on Abraham, to be sure, but those, those are not why he is on this list. Those blemishes are not why God called him to be the father of a nation. Really, he was, he was called largely in spite of those blemishes, I would argue. Now, the reason that Abraham is important is for one reason above all else. When God called him, he followed. That is why he is the father of the three great religions of the world. That single act of blind faith. So by Matthew saying that Abraham is who Jesus traces to, that that says a lot. It says that if there is a single person who is the next step in God's plan for his people, it is Jesus. Because he, well, he and his family have been an intricate part of the mission of God every step of the way. That is Abraham. But the keen-eyed amongst you, you're going to realize something when you look at Luke again. And that's this. Abraham is not where the genealogy of Luke ends. Now, it keeps going after that. And it's continuation. It goes past Terah. It goes past Noah. Not just to Lamech which is an interesting point in itself that I invite you to think about why Lamech is on that list. But it continues all the way back. It continues to Adam, who we read is the Son of God. Now, I am going to say something uh, important now. So I want you to remember it, if nothing else, of what I'm going to say all of today. In fact, if there is a, a single point in the, in the whole book of Luke that is important, it, it is this. The genealogy of Christ, it begins with Adam. 
there are a lot of important things that go on in the book of Luke. And we have talked about a great many of them already. And we talk about a great many of them more in the time to come. But all of them mean really nothing to us if we ignore the seemingly insignificant point. That it is only insignificant for us today because we are not people that use genealogies in the same way. And that important fact is that in the book of Luke, the genealogy continues all the way back to Adam, which is odd for us today who look at this passage as a throwaway, as something we need to slog through before we get to the good stuff. The fact that we do that is unfortunate because in making that choice, we miss something so profound, so important to us in the here and now that it literally, it has changed the face of the world over the past 2,000 years. By going back to Adam, by not just stopping in Abraham, but going all the way back, what Luke is saying in no uncertain terms for anyone who is reading this passage in a culture that values genealogies is that the reason Christ is fit to be the Messiah is because he is directly descended from the father of all humanity to Adam himself just like all of us are. And making that connection and adding those lines, Christ in the eyes of Luke has stopped being just the foretold Messiah of the Jews and has become, he has become the savior of all humankind. That, that is an unbelievably big deal to anyone who would have been reading Luke when it was writing. That is an unbelievably big deal, even to us today. Not mentioned in the past, on a few occasions, that the idea of Christ uh, being the Savior, come for all, it was not necessarily evident to his early followers. I mean, he was called to be the King of the Jews, uh, who came in fulfillment of Jewish scripture. So there was nothing self-evident that he came for all people in all way different, uh, in a way that was all different than what was all going on. This is something that is missing on us Christians in the here and the now. This is something that has become second nature to us to the point uh, that it is taken for granted. And that, that is a shame of the modern church to us the gospel that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came to save all humanity and creation from a death of their own making for no reason other than he loves us that much. That has somehow become blasé. And our zeal with which we spread the good news, it has begun to show our lethargy of the spirit because of it. But I mean, how can that be? I want you all to do something for me now. I want you to try as hard as you can, and if you need to close your eyes, feel free. I want you to try as hard as you can to forget everything you know about the gospel, everything you know about God, about the church, about the Bible. I want you to, to put it in a corner of your mind where it is not touching a single thing. In your mind, all you know is that the world exists and God created it in some way. Imagine it like you are the people of the first century reading the Gospel of Luke 
for the first time. Now, I want you to listen to me while I say just a few words. We live in a world that is not as it should be. It is much less. I think we can all agree to that. And a large amount of that pain, that that pain exists because of that, that, of the terrible choices that human beings seem unable to stop making. Think of the fear in the world today. Think of the violence in the world today. Think of the anger that exists for no reason other than people just seem to be unable to want to hear each other's point of view. Now to all of that, what would you say if I told you that there is someone who was born, who was alive, who could finally set all those things right? What would you say to that? Some of you would be excited. Some of you would probably be skeptical, rightfully so. Why would you believe anyone who says that about themselves? Pretty much everyone who has ever claimed that for themselves has either been trying to start a cult or to sell you something. And so I answer you as follows. This one who is, who is claiming this, he, he's different. This one is the, he has the right family to do it. Would you question a prince claiming his throne? This one, he is, he is descended from kings who had the favor of God. This one is descended from one who became an ancestor to royalty because of his compassion and his uprightness for those he had no duty to. This one is descended from one who was so in line with the will of God that he became the father of Judaism itself. And this one, like you and like me, is descended from the one who walked with God in the garden when things were still right in the world. This is the one who has come. And this is the one who will set things right, not just for Israel, but for the all of creation. That is who Jesus Christ is. If I told you that, like Luke is telling us in this passage, well, you'd probably still think I was insane, but is that not an amazing story to behold? That our God, the Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who will work and is working to set the wrong things right, that he, the one who is from the line of great men, holy men and kings, that, that he has come for all of us. Is that not the good news of the gospel right there? And all just from a couple names in a genealogy. I hope, I hope I have convinced you to all come around to my side when it comes to appreciating genealogies. If I haven't, well, I'm sorry, but I'll get you there yet. I hope that at the absolute least you have come to begin to see the importance that they have in Scripture. With what I've gone over today, you can easily look at one when you come across it, and you can get a whole lot out of what it is holding for you. 
All too often we think of genealogies as just a family tree with no bearing on anything, which is unfortunate because of all of the things that genealogies are in the Bible. They, they really are not an accurate list uh, of who is in a family or not. They're, they're actually terrible for that. They skip over huge portions of time. When you see a genealogy, do not take it as a timeline. It is, of all things, really not doing that. Um, also, I want to I wanna make sure to say just a quick upfront about the use of genealogies. Uh, what they absolutely shouldn't be taken as is saying that if your parents are terrible, then you are going to be terrible as well. They shouldn't be taken to say anything like that. Uh, you were influenced by your past for sure, but at the same time, you're still your own person as you go through life. But what genealogies are doing is they are, they are telling us in a way that almost all of history has been able to comprehend that what is going on is something amazing. But that is where I think I'm going to leave things this morning.